You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hunt. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. And we always start by asking each other how our month was. So Micah, how did August 2022 treat you? It was, it went by so fast, which is right? kind of That crazy. one didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I did get to hop in a few lakes, well, one lake several times. Um, and I read many books and I watched some really good movies. This feels like a transition, but it's not supposed to be. Um, and it was, it was hot. It's kind of weird how warm it, like I, someone said to me yesterday that the West Coast summer is disappearing, which is sad. I'm sorry to depress you like that, but yeah, it's been, um, it's been an interesting adjustment, but I, um, and I'm excited for fall, I will say. What do you mean by a West Coast summer? Like, typically, if you had asked me four years ago, what is uh-huh. summer like in Vancouver? Uh-huh. I would say it's not that humid. It never really goes above 27. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Celsius. generally temperate. Um, every, like, we've had so many 30 plus days and it's so humid. Um, Like it's so different. Um, And it's nothing like the kind of horrible East coast temperatures. Um, But we also don't have AC in this part of the country because we didn't need it until the last couple of years. Um, So it's been interesting. It's like an interesting kind of rearranging your brain to be like, this is what summer is like now. Yeah, totally, totally get that. I think I do prefer what you described as the previous West Coast summer. I got a little of that this month. I actually spent two weeks in Northern California, uh, which was lovely. There was like one or two 30 plus degree Celsius days and a little tough because, yeah, no AC there. But most of the days were just, you know, nice, chill, cool chill and cool, not meaning like literally cold, but like enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I also got to hop in some lakes there. Very fun. Did some tubing too. My arms are like still sore from that. And then coming back to New York, I was thinking, okay, like summer is almost over. I also have that feeling when I do a vacation in August and it's a summer, very summery vacation. Once I come back, I'm like, cool, summer is over. Now it will be September and I am ready to like wear a scarf. But no, it's been pretty hot since I have been back. And I actually had my sister come to stay for a few days and a friend, which was lovely. Uh, But yeah, I think even they were still surprised that it was still so hot here in the city. But we're getting through it. Um, Micah, as you mentioned, we like talking about reading and watching and listening things. So do you want to kick us off with what you have read in August? Yeah. You mentioned you read a lot. Um, this is a book that um, it's the actually only book I didn't physically read. I listened to the audiobook this month, but I've been talking to everyone about it. So I will talk to you about it as well. Um, it's called How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Um, the title may sound familiar. It was like on every single best of 2021 list um, 
it's like New York Times bestseller. It's um, a nonfiction book, and it asks the question of how the history of slavery is taught in America and around the world. Um, Clint Smith is a poet and writer, but he's also a uh, academic. So it kind of the book takes both his really beautiful prose and his really like skilled research abilities. Um, and the way he kind of goes about asking this question is he each section is based around a specific site or place. Um, mm-hmm. And he goes and visits these different locations and interrogates how they tell the history of slavery. And he goes to kind of a, a variety of places. He goes to Jefferson's, one of Jefferson's plantations. He goes to a Confederate cemetery. Um, but he also goes to Senegal to one of the Door of No Returns um, where people have like uh, the historical record shows that many, many slaves had left from that specific house that he went to. But it was really interesting um, to like listen to, but also I think to read it would be amazing. As I said, like the writing is just insanely good. It's so beautiful. Um, and I think he fully captures his own writing as he narrates it. I would highly recommend um, if you're looking for a nonfiction that is still like kind of written in a really nice way. I love those. I think that's one of the reasons I love Crying in H Mart so much because, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a true story, but it read almost like fiction because it was so beautiful and engaging. Yeah. So I like that recommendation. Thank you, Micah. This month, I am finally ready to talk about, (laughs) finally ready to talk about the Throne of Glass series by Sarah J. Mass. If you are a this year listener of the show, you will know that I have been on a Sarah J. Mass kick. I have read her series, A Court of Thorns and Roses. I've read her Crescent City series, actually finished the second book in that while I was in Micah's living room. And it was a very exciting uh, day, that ending, that ending. (laughs) And this month, I finally finished the seven main books and one book of prequel stories that comprises Throne of Glass, which is great timing because uh, the influencer twins we follow quite voraciously, uh, Mm -hmm. Brooklyn and Bailey, got Throne of Glass tattoos this month. So to tell you about Throne of Glass, according to Wikipedia, it follows the journey of Selena Sardothian, a teenage assassin in a corrupt kingdom with a tyrannical ruler, the King of Adderlin. And that description makes sense definitely for the first book because like it was originally written for fictionpress.com when Sarah J. Mass was like 16. Mm-hmm. But because it's like eight books stretching on so many years, the story pushes far beyond that. We get like fairies, we get new villains, uh, we get new names for existing characters. We get crossovers with A Court of Thorns and Roses, a very little one, but a satisfying one nonetheless. And we get a lot better writing. So although I was like a little slow to love this one, definitely got into it by the end. Would I recommend it? It's a maybe on that one. Um, I think if you liked A Court of Thorns and Roses, and that's kind of like the biggie, I think, because of things Mm -hmm. like TikTok, 
it's like richer than that because there's so many more books. You know, it feels like an epic fantasy with all these stories and plot lines and characters. But I think Akatar, as we call it, is a more concise, well-planned story from the beginning. And it still has my heart. So that's where I would direct you. Micah, I've been trying to convince you to read it for a while. And I'm still going to mm-hmm. say, start with Akatar. How about watching? You mentioned some things you were watching this month. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched so many things. They were all, well, not all. They were mostly good. Um, one movie I would love to tell you about, um, in the kind of theme of old Hollywood movies that I've been chatting with you about this whole year, um, I've watched Charade that stars mm-hmm. Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, and Walter Mayhew. Um it's a thriller, it's a comedy, it's a spy movie. Um, it's kind of like one of the last golden Hollywood movies. Um, and it's the only Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn movie that they ever made together, which is kind of insane, considering how mm. big the two of them are. Um, but it's kind of wonderful that it's safe for this one movie because their chemistry is, like, unbelievable. They are so good Um, And he's, like, 25 years older than she is. And apparently, when reading the script and finding out that Audrey Hepburn would be playing opposite him, Cary Grant did not like the fact that she was so much younger. So he asked that they rework the script to make Audrey Hepburn pursue him much more than a woman traditionally would in the movie from that era. And I read this really wonderful article in The Guardian that um, we will link in the description. And it points out that this added dynamic really gives Hepburn the chance to play a truly empowered character. Um, she's very clearly attracted to Grant's character and she asks for what she wants, which I think we don't really get to see from her as an actress very often. Um, so in some ways it's like a great like feminist take on a golden Hollywood movie. Um, obviously, like it is a movie of its time, and there's some like not great things in it, um, but it's wonderful, and I would highly recommend it. It's so much fun. Um, I was only going to talk to you about that movie, but then last night um, we went and saw Breaking Away, which is a similarly fun movie, and I just had to give it a very quick shout out. It's a movie from the late '70s about a group of boys who were born and raised in Bloomington, Indiana. And they find themselves in conflict with the local college kids who are attending Indiana State. Um, I like that. It's, it stars Dennis Quaid um, as like oh. the hot one of, of the group of boys. He's very good. And Dennis Quaid kind of like seems like the main character for the first 20 minutes because he's just that charismatic. But then it becomes clear that Dave is actually the main character. Um, he is obsessed with cycling to the point that he starts adopting like Italian mannerisms and accents. So he calls his mom and dad, mama and papa, and he only wears bicycle gear and he feeds, he calls his cat Fellini and he feeds Fellini, um, spicy meatballs. He's like learning Italian. It's so cute. Um, and it's like also about cycling and it's funny and heartfelt and about class, um, the relationships between these groups of boys kind of unfolds. Um, and I think it probably has one of the best race scenes I've ever seen 
put to film. It's a cycling race, but like better, like cars, whatever, horses, so good. At the end, we were like, we watched it in the theater. At the end of the race, someone started cheering and clapping. When you say someone, is this a someone? It, do we, is it no, one of you? We don't know this someone. It was a, okay, ra- okay. we were in the balcony and we just <laughs> heard it. from down below someone clapping. I wanted to clap. It was so good. Um, so I would highly recommend, even if you like do not care about cycling, it doesn't matter. It's like the cutest and sweetest movie. Um, and kind of like one of the hidden gems of that era because I don't think a lot of people have seen it. And was like your local theater re-screening it? Is that yeah? So our local um, VIF, which is the Vancouver International Film Festival, is doing a oh. seven. They have like a year-round theater, and they're doing a seventies series. Oh, cool! So they're showing. Um, it's just ending now. They're going into like mid-September. They're showing like all the classic seventies movies, um, and this and just like the hidden gem so this is one of the hidden gems but we saw like all that jazz and um mash and taking a film one two three and like a lot of i've seen a lot of 70s movies and they're all so good it's like such a wonderful era of cinema um so recommend them all but particularly breaking away because it brought me so much joy okay i think i think you might have told me um I am not an old timey movie person, and for me, old timey is like pre nineteen seventy or pre nineteen eighty. Honestly, pre nineteen eighty, definitely nothing black and white. I know that makes me sound like an airhead, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> but if it's like funny and cute, sure. You might have sold me there, Micah. So mm-hmm. maybe I'll fit it in in September. The thing I have been watching most this month. I guess not most because there's like six episodes of it, but each one of them thrilled me in a way that I haven't felt mm-hmm. before is the rehearsal. Have you been watching the rehearsal? I have. I admittedly, um, despite the fact that the creator is Canadian, um, there's something deeply Canadian in my soul of being unable to watch embarrassing, like cringy stuff. Yeah. And I could not finish the first episode. Um, but I've, like, I've seen the rest of it. I just never finished the first episode. I think the first one is actually, yeah, the one that I felt the most uncomfortable with mm-hmm. because the people in it felt a little more vulnerable than everyone else that he makes uncomfortable. Yes. Um, and we saw like a lot less of them. So sorry if I'm being vague here. Just to just to backtrack and tell everyone about the show, it is a new one from Canadian comedian Nathan Fielder, who is known, best known, I guess, before this for Nathan For You. I've actually been rewatching that show this week and Mm -hmm. it's like very clear, like the progression from Nathan for you to the rehearsal, but that one's where he's like playing this fictionalized version of himself. And in this like very deadpan manner is suggesting completely crazy strategies to Mm -hmm. struggling businesses. So in the first episode, he gets like a frozen yogurt store to sell poop flavored yogurt for publicity. Or he has, like, a realtor advertise herself as selling only ghost-free properties. Fully unhinged stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, like, the funniest thing about that was his ability to get these kind of reactions from ordinary people. The funniest bit was always, like, what the ordinary people did in response to him rather than what he was specifically doing. And I think the rehearsal capitalize on that so the description of the show is basically nathan helping people rehearse difficult conversations or life events 
through the use of sets and actors hired to recreate real situations. So the situations can be trivial, like in the first episode, we have a guy confessing to a lie about his educational history or more complex, which the rest of the series, the sort of arc is uh, Nathan and this woman he finds raising a child. (laughs) It is fully wild. I think if you didn't love the first episode, stick with it. The first episode feels like almost a proof of concept of just like uh, contained. This is what we can do with it. The remaining ones are like a lot richer. And I think uh, the uncomfortableness pays off a little bit more, but it's truly wild. You never know where it's going to go. And I think that's the beauty of it. It's a, a very strange piece of television. It's unlike anything I've seen before. And I recommend it for that reason. Yes, I would say that you never know where it's going to go is demonstrated best in that I texted a friend while watching it, oh my god, I love this character, and then 20 minutes later texted him and said, I'm so sorry, I do not love this character at all, I can't believe I said that. And lastly, listening. What have you been listening to in August 2022, Micah? I've been listening to a new-to-me podcast called Normal Gossip. Have you heard of this one? I don't think I've heard of the name of it, but just reading your show notes, um, the fact that it's discussing about why we gossip and like why gossip isn't actually as evil as it's painted out to be rings a bell. Like I almost feel like I listened to a previous podcast where they spoke about this. So maybe in a way, yes and no. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I can't remember what the, network it's called it's called normal gossip it's hosted by kelsey mckinney um and basically user listeners submit gossip stories and mckinney very well like she's a great storyteller she recounts the story to a different guest each week oh that's Um, funny the stories are always like it's normal gossip it's like about people's lives um they're always wild the storytelling is so good um and she kind of like pauses throughout the story and asks the guests so what would you do now and then obviously the guest is like makes a funny joke and then the person never does the sensible thing it's always of course not of course not yeah because why would you do the sensible thing um they talk about like the importance of gossip in the guest's life and they kind of um they have different like things about like why gossip is useful part of it is that it helps you navigate a workplace like knowing um, other people's salaries, but also knowing like the power dynamics at play. Mm-hmm. A lot about secret family money, which Ooh. is when like you have a friend who just like exists normally, and then you discover like years late, and they like exist like seemingly with some amount Honestly. of money sprinkled. Yeah, and then you find out years later that they actually like have a trust fund and had no money struggles whatsoever. Yes, um, you go to like their 50 grand wedding and you're like, hmm, what's happening? This is yes. suspicious. Secret money, people. Um, so stuff like that. They talk about kind of like how it breaks down class and other barriers. Um, but mostly it's just like really wonderful storytelling about true events. And it's such a good way to kind of lose yourself um, in a podcast for an hour. So I would highly recommend that does sound fun. I'm on the hunt for a new podcast. So I am going to give that one a listen for sure. In terms of my listening, I don't know if I mentioned it here before, but I got a record player upon moving into my new apartment in July. And I've been trying to build up the collection. 
this month I got quite a few, but two I'm like super excited about. One was a $4 copy of the St. Elmo's Fire soundtrack. St. Elmo's Fire is my favorite movie. Uh, it is like objectively not very good, but it is so comforting to me. I just mm -hmm. adore it. So very excited to have that soundtrack. And then Vinyl Me Please re-released my favorite album of all time, uh, Room on Fire by The Strokes. It's their second album and mm -hmm. in my opinion, their best. And my good friend Erica actually wrote the liner notes for it. So I have been holding on to them cool. and that makes it extra precious to me. So if you've got a record player, definitely recommend those two. Welcome to politics. This month, I thought we would talk about um, some dancing politicians, or specifically as one dancing politician. This um, sounds like you know on iCarly when they would have that like random dancing, yes. or like <laughs> on the Amanda Show where they'd be like, "Bring in the dancing lobsters." Yes, that we would we would dance for you right now if it weren't for the fact that this is an audio medium, um, so you can't see us dance, unfortunately. And I don't know if we have the rights to have a button that says bring in the dancing lobster so just imagine this is true. That just I'm imagine that's an amanda thing. show yeah yeah um the dancing politician of note this month is sana marin um she is the premier of finland she's actually the youngest premier finland has ever had and the third youngest state leader in the world um she's 36 which both feels young and not that young. I don't know. Like, I would like 36-year-olds to be in positions of power because they speak more to my needs as a young Right, person. like we let them be doctors and lawyers and yes. all that sort of stuff. So why could you not? But they can't. They're, they're like very – it's young for them to be making decisions about our future. Because they're not like eight. Yeah. Yes. Well – as an aside, I've been working on trying to get youth to vote in elections, and our what we consider to be youth is 18 to 30-year-olds. Interesting. Which is feels young to me, um, but also, like, not that young. Like, I don't know. I guess normally when we talk about youths, it's, like, teenagers and kids. Yes, but they but then in vote, the context so. of voting, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Regardless, Sana Marin, um, the fact that she is young will come back into this, I promise. Okay. Uh, she became premier, they're not prime minister, they're premier in Finland, in December of 2019. So, like, a rough time to yeah. start your tenure. Um, she wasn't elected, but rather the, like, in an, she didn't become premier because of a general election. The leader of her party stepped down. Um, and Finland has a system in which coalition governments are quite common. So she's actually the leader of a five-party coalition. Her party's the Social Democratic Party, so more leaning towards the left. Um, and Finland has a really strong recent history of having quite a few women in power. Um, she's by no means the first premier of the country. There's been many women who have come before her. And 12 out of her 19 cabinet members are women. Um, wow. Which I think sets an interesting context because that really isn't the case in most of the world. Mm -hmm. um, as she, in the last, I guess, two years of being 
premiere, she the first thing she did was equ- um, introduce equalized paternal paternity or parental leave. Sorry, equalized. All those words are very parental. similar. They really are. <laughs> um, so this means that um, both men and women can get up and anyone else um, can get up to three months off um, paid time when they have a kid. Sorry, three seven months off. Um, which is exciting, which is so much more than so many other countries. Um, she's also uh, obviously had to guide her country through COVID and the Finnish people, I think in general, are like satisfied with how she's done that. Um, she's been instrumental in bringing Finland into NATO. They're not fully joined yet, but they've started making the moves towards that. Obviously, we've had a war in Ukraine and Russia being much more aggressive and Finland borders Russia. So it seems like a good idea to have some extra defenses. Um, And that's been kind of one of her crowning achievements so far. So why is she in the news and why is it for dancing? Um, In mid-August, a video was leaked of Marin dancing at a club. Um, This is all like chill with COVID regulations. Um, And she's clearly been drinking, but she's like having a good time with her friends. Um, this video gets published by a local newspaper, and there's a lot of a backlash against this. People call her childish. They say they shouldn't, she shouldn't be doing this. Um, and then there was backlash to the backlash. Uh, people took um, the criticisms as being ridiculous. Uh, Finnish women started posting themselves dancing and used the hashtag solidarity with Sana. Um, and then she got like, as this is happening, it starts blowing up internationally. Like it's not just in the Finnish news and prominent women from around the world, including AOC and Hillary Clinton, um, send out tweets supporting her. Clinton posted a picture of her dancing in Cartagena um, when she was secretary of state. So while she was working, she's like dancing in a room full of people. And she told in, in the tweet, she told Marin to keep dancing. Um, AOC posted a picture of her dancing in front of her uh, office in Congress. So this happens. A lot of people on Twitter are like, imagine if our biggest problem was that we had a prime minister who dances. Um, I wish. Um, Then a week later, probably because of kind of the shenanigans that's happening, um, Another video is leaked, and this time it's of Marin and her friends at the official residence of the premier. Um, and in the video, two of her female friends kiss and then pull their shirts off. Yes, so go for like it, girls. A little more risque. Uh, I want to get invited to one of these parties. <laughs> this never happens at the ones I, I go to. Sounds like fun. Right? Um, they're having a good time. Good for them. This led to another wave of backlash, and it forced Marin to make a statement defending her actions, being like, I didn't do anything that was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, during the last, the, when the first video was released, the um, opposition said that she must be on drugs because she's dancing at a club, and so she had to take a drug test, which <gasps> came out negative. Um, she, like, willingly took like- one some footloose energy where it's like they must be on drugs if they're dancing dancing's just so crazy yeah um and then also part of her 
statement with the second video was saying how she was very upset that this private video was made public and this was a breach of her privacy and she was allowed to have a life outside of like being a politician and being premier um the fact that this video was like more risque and that this follows other scandals that she's had so in the past in december 2021 she like went out to a club after being exposed to covid but she was told she didn't it was okay because she was vaccinated because this was before we knew right yeah um and then she didn't have it was like this whole like being irresponsible but also doing everything that she was told to do um and she's also been attending music festivals this summer and so it's Um, just kind of i wish i was i know sounds like fun finished music festivals sound great Um, yeah i got it yeah so there's just been like series of kind of backlash and this is the biggest one Mm -hmm. um because it's gotten so honestly viral across the internet and i like I read many a think piece when researching this, and there was just so many in every single nationality newspaper. Um, well, give us yours, Micah. Give us the Canadian yeah. perspective. You're um, the official Canadian perspective. <laughs> yes, obviously, I represent us all. Justin um, has anointed you with the ability to speak on this topic. Mm-hmm. Facts. Um, going through all these articles, I've kind of pulled up some kind of general themes that people have been talking about. Um, and why this became such a scandal. And I think one of them is the backlash to the backlash. And specifically what everyone is talking about is that there's this double standard for young female politicians. Um, Women, especially young women, are held to a higher standard than their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time. People criticize what they wear, um, what they eat, how they carry themselves. It's all scrutinized so much more. Um, like, I think a prime example of this is, like, people being upset that, like, AOC wears red lipstick. Like, she's just existing in her space. Um, speaking of AOC, this criticism that we often see in scrutinization is often harsher for racialized women. Mm -hmm. Um, AOC herself has had a dancing scandal, if you can call it a scandal. Um, it was... Like, right after she was elected, someone found a video of her dancing in, like, a promotional video at college. Um, was this was the like one on where the she was on the roof? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was great. Yeah, she, like, looked like she was having a great time. Um, yeah. But it was found by kind of right-wing media and thrown all over Twitter. And people kept on – people used this video to say that she was not responsible enough to lead. Despite the fact that the video did not happen while she was leading – like, she wasn't a politician at the time. And it was years before. And she was at college, which is, like, a response. She went to a very good college in Boston, which is yeah. a responsible thing to do. Yet, it would be fine for, like, Trump to be in a Home Alone video or, like, be judging beauty pageants and stuff. Like, as if that isn't silly, frivolous things as well. Yeah, exactly. In the way that dancing is. I mean, come on. I know. Um Dr. Sarah Crooks, who researches the double standards for women in politics, um, says that women are perceived to be guests in positions of authority rather than um, accepted occupiers of these positions. And so the bar that they're set is much higher. Um, 
because we don't see women in politics, she's saying we see them as kind of this outlier and they're not really supposed Mm -hmm. to be there. So they have to earn the spot they're in much more. I think this is really interesting in the context of Sana Marin, who in that country, like all women are like most politicians are women. Um, so they're, and it's been so for a while, so they're not really guests. I think the double standard explanation really explains the international yes. kind of yeah. reception to this, but maybe doesn't explain the Finnish reception, and we'll talk about that more later. Um, I think that when this double standard is about kind of the moral panic of women being in positions of power and so this is exemplified really well in like the drug test thing of Mm -hmm. um there's a moral panic that pops up when people um are dancing and then they think that well if dancing's bad it is the footloose thing dancing's bad what does it lead to drugs obviously drugs Um, is murder and death and it's like yeah ridiculous um there's so many like examples of this double standard happening, but I think one that came to mind is that men can use dancing and partying as a PR strategy where women get yeah. shamed for it. Um, the kind of current example of this is the new mayor of New York, Eric Adams. Um, he came into his position last year and his kind of two big things were increasing safety, so more cops, um, and but also that he wanted to bring New York back um, in a post-pandemic back, whatever that means. And part of bringing New York back for Adams is that we need to show that the nightclubs are open. And so he has been going to nightclubs, both like just for himself, but also in his official capacity as mayor. He's been spotted with different celebrities partying up all over the city. Um, And obviously, like some people have like criticisms of that but other people um including this nightlife blogger have said he's amazing we can't get celebrities to go out these days they're all scared of instagram so it's amazing we've got the mayor we don't need leo dicaprio anymore well Um, if you're older than 26 he won't need you either don't worry this is true um but yeah here goes eric adams people don't like him but not because he's out partying they don't like him because he is a cop and they don't enjoy his policies, but he's not getting the vitriol that Marin is getting for partying. He's like, it's part of his campaign saw and his team saw nothing wrong with him adding it into his PR strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one aspect is like this double standard. Another way to interpret this, which I think is interesting, is um, from the view of hypocrisy, specifically hypocrisy of the public. Um, and this is slightly different than the double standard. It's based on this idea that we expect our politicians, kind of like we accept our celebrities, to both be people, but then we get offended if they're pe- too much like people who have like lives and families and exist outside of that. So you like, the typical example of that is for like an American politician, they need to like have a family and believe in God and like have like been successful in business and like there's kind of this idea but if they move step too much into that like normal personness it becomes an issue or if they have like personal flaws that are outside their job and don't necessarily yes. affect their job but are just the regular things that a flawed person would have then that's a big problem 
Exactly. Um, so when in the second press conference she had, Marin said, um, I am a human, and sometimes in the middle of these dark clouds, I miss joy, light, and fun. She pointed out that she had done her job. She didn't have anything to do that week. And like any, she was the weekend. She didn't have any work obligations. And on Monday, she showed up to do her job and did it as well as she had ever done it. And Mm -hmm. no government, government functioning like suffered because of her actions. Um, This level of hypocrisy comes up in other ways too. And is it directed to men as much as it's directed to women sometimes? Um, it reminded me of one of my least favorite Justin Trudeau scandals, which was the nanny scandal of 2015. This was right when he came prime minister. This isn't going to be like every other celebrity's nanny scandal. No, no, it's very different. Them, right? Okay. Um, okay. Yes. So Justin Trudeau is elected. Part of his kind of campaign push is like he's a cool guy and he has three very cute kids. Mm-hmm. And like he's a he's a family man, um, so he gets elected, and uh, a, a, reports come out that they are paying two nannies to take care of their children, um, and they're using government money to do this. Uh, people were so upset that people would be paying the Canadian people would be paying for his nannies, but at the same time they expected him to like take care of the country and do a this job and like if an emergency would happen someone should take care of his children and it shouldn't be him so this weird like we love that you're a family man but we don't think that your children should be taken care of but we also think that you should dedicate your whole life to work interestingly also under all of this is like trudeau ran on this campaign of being a feminist and like Uh you should treat women well but like there's this underlying sexism in there that assumes that like his wife will be the one taking care of his children and picking up the slack for him being prime minister which is a very demanding job um right but no like in in an equitable situation he would get a nanny to do the child care that he should be doing Mm -hmm. um it was all this kind of like very weird hypocrisy from people who were just kind of wanted to be outraged. And I think part of this hypocrisy is that people like to be outraged about their politicians now. Um, Which brings me into the next kind of idea that has been circling around. It's this idea that the Finnish have really high standards for their politicians. Oh, Um, interesting. And it's their politics. This is from a Bloomberg article. Um, And it's that their politicians like, always get criticized regardless if they're men or women Hmm. um and it's often for partying though one of them was for this a woman who wore fishnets to work which sexist um but it could be that the finnish kind of something that wouldn't get picked up in the normal like in the media in like sweden per se or like Mm -hmm. germany or whatever gets picked up by the finnish and then because everyone's like, why are you picking us up? This is ridiculous. It then becomes an international thing. And now all of a sudden Finland is in the news because their um, premier is dancing. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that the, then the second kind of level of coverage is the Finnish being like, I don't care that our prime minister or premier is dancing. We're like about to enter the winter without any energy because they have cut off Russian um natural gas and so now they won't have any way to heat their homes um but so it's kind of 
it's an interesting deflection that no one wanted, but has we've ended up here. The final thread I have seen through all of this is that it's not about double standards. It's not about hypocrisy. It's not about the Finnish like being kind of worried about their politicians being bad. It's simply about the quality of dancing. <laughs> um, as came up again and again, um, specifically there's this Guardian article where they discuss the merits of different politicians dancing, videos included. So this included um, Boris Johnson and Theresa May, ranked very low for their dancing abilities. Yes. They danced, this, these videos came out, specifically there's one of Boris Johnson dancing at his wedding. People but saw the video. He also danced at the illicit lockdown party he had last. Yes, that's, in like, that's slightly different. Because I don't know if there was video of him dancing. Sure, but it is interesting to think about, you know, in this conversation of double standards. I personally have a lot more of a problem with someone who is giving one rule to the people of the UK and then is allowing themselves to live by another set of ones. So while everyone else was not able to see their families over Christmas, he was like Mm -hmm. having a little dance party with his maids. That feels like a double standard, you know, versus Sana who was just having a night off. Existing. Legally. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Uh, hmm. The Boris Johnson double standard never ends. Well, yes. it yeah. will soon, one hopes. Yeah, true. Um, but yeah, so Boris Johnson, Theresa May dancing very badly. Another like common thing that came up is not bad dancing, but cringy dancing, mm. often associated with white politicians attempting to do the traditional dances of racialized folks. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin Trudeau is, is very famous for this and does a lot of that. Um, so these are like, these dancing like they pop up in the news people are like either laugh at them or kind of go oh that's not why are you doing that um but the thing is is sana marin was very good at dancing um everyone was like she has moves well done so this kind of thread that came up in like not just this guardian article but several articles was this idea that because she is good she is getting so much criticism you're not That's allowed funny. to be a good dancer if you are um, a politician. So as a kind of concluding thought, if you if a politician is listening or if you want to be a politician, if you're going to dance in public, you better be bad at it or it'll go badly for you. So for our pop culture segment, Mike, I'm actually glad you brought up outrage so much in the (laughs) politics one, because it really ties into what I wanted to talk about, which is this month we had supermodel Linda Evangelista controversially appearing on the cover of British Vogue. And it got me thinking about the reasons how and why outrage is used to get people talking. So some background on this. Who is Linda Evangelista? She is a 57-year-old supermodel from Ontario who was huge in the 80s and 90s, had more than 700 magazine covers, and is well known for the phrase, we don't wake up for less than $10,000 a day, speaking for herself and the other four big supermodels at the time. There was like this group of five that were like a supermodel girl band Mm -hmm. that were going around. 
But more recently, in September 2021, to be specific, Angelista explained that she had withdrawn from public life and stopped working over the past five years because in between August 2015 and February 2016, she underwent seven sessions of cryolipolysis. Actually, to sound (laughs) that one out there, cryolipolysis, a cosmetic fat removal procedure under the brand name Cool Sculpting. I've heard of Cool Sculpting before. Have you, Micah? No. It is a procedure that is meant to reduce fat under your skin. So I guess like a liposuction kind of vibe, uh, but I think a little less cutty. Wait, I have seen this and it very much confused me. Yes. So for Linda, though, it did the opposite. She suffered from a complication called paradoxical adipose hyperplasia, P-H-P-A-H, which caused large, hard, and numb bulges to appear at the sites where she had got the cool sculpting. So for her, that was her chin, thighs, and bra area. Yes. And she explained this on her Instagram. She said that she felt brutally disfigured and permanently deformed. And then speaking to People Magazine in February this year, she said, I tried to fix it myself, thinking I was doing something wrong. She talked about how she was dieting and exercising more and eventually got to the point where I wasn't eating at all. I thought I was losing my mind. So we'll discuss a little bit more about those comments later. But to fold the current situation into this Mm -hmm. timeline... She appeared this month on the cover of British Vogue for their September issue. If you're a fashion girly, you'll know that September is typically the biggest, most important issue of the year for magazines like Vogue. And in terms of the article within, because it was an interview and profile with her, I actually didn't find it that revelatory or groundbreaking. It basically chronicles her life and career so where she got her start you know her big moments which i think you can find easily online you know even Mm -hmm. after reading her wikipedia page nothing in the article was that new to me but then the latter half focuses on the years since she underwent the cool sculpting and faced problems with that and you know really talking about how it's affected her mental health and career and that was definitely you know, really touching and an important conversation, but it has sort of been discussed before, like in the People magazine feature that I brought up earlier. But the thing that really caught people's eye was one paragraph that reads, and I'm going to read it out here. The writer says, she is keen to make clear that for this Vogue cover and fashion story, makeup artist Pat McGraw gently drew her face jaw and neck back with tape and elastics that's not my jaw and neck in real life and i can't walk around with tape and elastics everywhere the journalist wonders how healthy this process might be for anyone grappling with body positivity but also for linda herself to alter her own reality at a time when she is trying to recover her confidence one gets the sense that she acknowledges it too you know what i'm trying to love myself as i am but for these photos She pauses for a moment to carefully choose her words. Look, for photos, I always think we're here to create fantasies. We're creating dreams. I think it's allowed. Also, all my insecurities are taken care of in these pictures. 
So I got to do what I love to do. Obviously, there is a ton to unpack here from when we first heard about Linda's cool sculpting uh, fallout in September 2021 to this time, so a whole year. Mm. Originally, we were getting all these reactions. For instance, uh, Fashionista's former editor-in-chief, Tyler McCall, summed it up in a tweet by saying, I have a lot of feelings about the Linda Evangelista thing about the pressure we put on women to forever look as they did when they were 20, how we mock and devalue them when they don't, her use of the word deformed to describe herself now. And a lot of people were on that train where there's, you know, she is not acting or speaking in isolation. There are societal and industry pressures that prompted her to undergo this surgery and then have such strong feelings about how it, turned out a lot of people did though obviously disagree with her use of the words disfigured and deformed uh sophie ross who is the a writer and editor at uh, publications like refinery and birdie did say though it's not just weight gain the condition cool sculpting gave her causes fat cells to turn into big hard lumps almost cyst-like they're on her face, neck, etc. I think if any of us woke up one day like that, especially after making our entire career off beauty, we'd feel disfigured. And then, you know, in response to this uh, British Vogue article where Linda's talking about excusing, I guess, the use of tape and elastics to literally give herself a, a new face. And if you look at pictures of, you know, for example, her um, People magazine last year versus her on the cover of this magazine. It mm-hmm. is completely different. Now she looks like she did genuinely when she was 20 uh, in these pictures. Uh, the New York Times questioned, should fashion still be serving up this filtered version of dreams, one forged in the decades when the industry itself was run by a group of gatekeepers who were largely white and privileged in an era shaped by the male gaze? So in light of that article, we've got more people expressing sympathy for her her having gone through this mental health crisis. Others saying, you know, her face is her art and she did what she needed to to create her vision for this piece. Other people saying, you know, she needs to just get a life. This isn't that big a deal. Like it it just looks like she's a little heavier than she was before, Mm -hmm. you know, grow up. Um, More people saying that this sets a bad example for other women who see this as a standard and that they should live up to when it's actually all smoke and mirrors and when i started like absorbing all this it actually just started feeling a little ick to me i mean i i want to word this carefully because i don't want to accuse british vogue of anything and Mm -hmm. i definitely don't want to undermine linda's very real mental health concerns but isn't it a little convenient that for the biggest issue of the year British Vogue resurfaced a controversial story, one that like to me kind of had no really new elements to it that we didn't know before. So there was no like, in my opinion, extra need to bring this up again. They Mm -hmm. resurfaced a story that touches on so many points of contention, particularly for women, which is their target audience. You know, it's touching on cosmetic surgery, it's touching on weight, it's touching on privilege, it's touching on all these things. I think they could have even done this same story but had you know a different cover they could have um presented linda and her story in a really raw way a real and raw way but instead they actually allowed 
the story to be heightened to new extremes with a very consciously executed and edited photo shoot. And, you know, maybe if that was like Linda's condition for being on the cover, they could have made a statement by saying, no, they weren't going to use editing. They weren't going to use these like techniques. They wanted to have a real and raw cover, maybe with a different celebrity, but they didn't. And it got me thinking that maybe they just wanted the outrage because convert like outrage gets people talking. It is like the thing that is how you Mm -hmm. get attention these days. Right. And conversation around the effects of outrage in shaping pop culture and our responses to it isn't new, but I do think it's always interesting and relevant. So I'm going to talk about a few articles that have discussed this before um, and why we are so fascinated by outrage. So in 2014, Slate called it the year of outrage, which I think almost feels laughable now yeah. i think we are just so much more outraged and angry as a society especially online i will say gen z was not even thinking in 2014 yeah the youngest members for sure crazy the outraged generation yeah i like this paragraph though it kind of explains what outrage online is like when something outrageous happens, when a posh London block installs anti-homeless spikes, or when Khloe Kardashian wears a Native American headdress, or for that matter, when we read the horrifying details in the Senate's torture report, it's easy to anticipate the cycle that follows. Anger, sarcasm, recrimination, piling on, defenses and counterattacks, anger at the anger, disdain for the outrage, sometimes an apology, and on to the next. Twitter and Facebook make it easier than ever to participate from home. And the same cycle occurs regardless of the gravity of the offense, which can make each outrage feel forgettable and replaceable. Sums it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2019, there was an episode of Hidden Brain by NPR, where it was found that for every moral, emotional word that people use in a tweet, it increased the rate of retweeting from other people by 15 to 20%. So it has real effect. This isn't just like us making it up. Outrage is actually causing things to be more talked about. And it is like perpetuating this cycle. But why? There is a 2015 Guardian article about the Katie Hopkins effect, referring to the English media personality who's like a columnist and far right political commentator. And yeah, this article asked, if being outraged is meant to be a negative experience, Why are so many so quick to embrace it to the extent that some people can make a living from causing offense? And the author, uh, who is a psychologist, had Mm -hmm. a lot of great reasons. The first was that it's an excuse to direct and express difficult emotions you may be feeling from different situations in your life at an issue. If people want to create a more moral world, which is great, you know, we don't mm-hmm. want anti-homeless spikes in London, or we don't want Khloe Kardashian wearing a Native American head- headdress, because those things are morally wrong. But there's also this element of people using or wanting the social status associated with moral superiority. Speaking about like how it kind of relates to each other, there's this 
often online a feeling of wanting to be part of a group. And to be part of a group, you often have to exhibit the traits of the group. So the example the article uses is that if you are part of a community that loves Batman, you are going to be upset if anything threatens to make Batman look bad. So if you were not part of the group or if it was any other issue or if you were taking a step back, it might not be that big of a deal, but it's all part of this like fitting in and you've made liking Batman part of your identity and this is how you express Mm -hmm. that. There is also mob mentality. When people around you are in this state of high arousal, like they're furious about something that violates your shared values, it encourages like individuals to get more heightened. And then kind of similar to what you were talking about with dancing, Micah, people are using like particularly politicians outrage as a tactic. So Mm -hmm. politicians are now experts at expressing outrage over something as a means to deflect any rational and potentially revealing discussion of their record or policies. I think on that last point, it's not just politicians. Mm Mm-hmm. The Kardashians are masters of this. They're not the first, they're not the only, but they are masters of this. Like to take a scandal from earlier this year, in March, 2020, Kim Kardashian finally said, I have the best advice for women and business. Get your fucking ass up and work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. And I say finally, cause you know, someone need to say it. Kim, like Kim K was right. We, we do get yeah. our ass up and work, you know? I kid, obviously. This was a thing that, I think she's a smart woman. And I actually don't know if this was a genuine comment, if she's silly enough to think that this comment is worth anything coming from someone as privileged who like doesn't even have to work as she is. Coincidentally, it was on the press tour of her new show and her making a comment like that got far more attention to her and her new show than if she had just said like nice platitudes about how excited she was to work with Hulu, you know? Yeah. Because really it's one of the most effective people, effective ways to get people talking outrage. I think one last example I want to talk about is an issue that has been happening this month. All the controversy around the Mm -hmm. upcoming movie. Don't worry, darling. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of it, Micah. There has been... Oh, yeah. I cannot remember the last time there was this much discussion about the drama inside a movie before the movie had even come out. It is. It is wild. Basically, Don't Worry, Darling is an upcoming film directed by Olivia Wilde. And it has had innumerable controversies associated. So we've got, firstly, the timeline of director... Olivia Wilde's relationship with her ex-fiance Jason Sudeikis ending and the beginning of her new relationship with the film star Harry Styles. People are thinking something sketch might have gone on there. That's like scandal number one from like back when Harry and Olivia have been together for like over a year now. So that one's been long going. Then we have uh, Olivia Wilde being served custody papers um, relating to her and Jason Sudeikis's two kids while on stage promoting Don't Worry Darling at an event called CinemaCon. That was kind of crazy. Then we have all the rumors of an onset beef between Olivia and the film's other lead star, uh, Florence Pugh. 
Then, very recently, we have Olivia claiming in a Variety article, or I guess like alluding to mm-hmm. the fact that she fired Shia LaBeouf, who was uh, supposed to play Harry's part from the movie. He because was supposed to play Harry's part? Yes, he was supposed to be Harry's would have been part. Weird. I, I think, yeah, yeah, definitely would have been weird. So, yeah, she sort of decided that he could not be in the movie because she had to protect the cast from his combative energy. But he has since claimed that he chose to leave the movie because there was a lack of rehearsal time. And he provided texts and videos that appear to show her asking him to remain on board. Now, as a side note of that, I think, like, I don't think we need to do like a Shia versus Olivia thing because like, Mm -hmm. although I feel she uh, probably could have been a little more transparent about what went down. uh, He is also a very controversial figure who among other allegations was uh, sued by his ex-girlfriend FKA twigs in December, 2020 for sexual battery assault and infliction of emotional distress. So like, I don't think we need to use this as like a Shia redemption moment of like him being a truthful king and like exposing olivia wilde's lies i think that's not great because i mean she hired him sorry i'm adding to the outrage but she hired him knowing that this was a thing that he had done i think this was before it i think he was fired he was hired before it yeah um but they filmed they filmed in summer 2021 before i think he had left by that stage okay we might add some notes in the um the timeline is confusing to me, regardless. Yes. No one yeah. looks good in this. But to your point, people are pumped for this movie now that all of this has happened. Right? Like, I think if I was on Olivia Wilde's team and I had almost what I would call, like, remember when Taylor Swift said all that stuff about, like, Kanye not telling her that he was going to mention her in a song and calling yes. her a bitch. And then Kim K provided the receipts of the phone call. Olivia Wilde has kind of had that sort of moment where she said one thing and Shia has seemingly provided evidence on the contrary. But if I was on her team, I don't know if I would be incredibly mad about it. Actually, if I was on her team, it's not good for her long-term, her personal long-term image, right? It it calls into question her professionalism. It calls into question her feminism because in the video in question she kind of refers to Florence Pugh as Miss Flo in a sort of demeaning fashion and yeah but I think if I was on the team for the movie I wouldn't be entirely mad I mean good press is great but getting people this stirred up I have personally spoken to people who were like oh now I want to see the movie now I'm ready Mm -hmm. for it because this is crazy So to conclude, that has been my little TED talk about us living in the age of outrage. I think for me, understanding how and why outrage is used as a tool has helped me be a lot less reactive to things I see in the media. Like with this Linda Evangelista story that spurred it on, I at first was like tempted to get into, you know, what was responsible for a British Vogue to do and like what, Mm -hmm. what does it say about women fashion and surgery and beauty expectations but then i just thought you know sometimes stories as much as i harp on about here about pop culture you know being worthy of analysis and helping us understand more about the world sometimes like 
they may simply exist to get a reaction. And once you realize that, you can save yourself a lot of emotional energy. Alrighty, that brings us to the end of another episode of Different Things Can Be Said. Micah, what are you going to be up to uh, in September before we hear from you again? I'm going to be enjoying all the fall vibes. I'm yeah. Pumpkin spice latte season. I am ready. I just wish it's it would be good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I believe, going to be overseas for a little bit. Travel plans still a little up in the air. So I hope <laughs> that kind of line has got you excited to tune in for uh, mm-hmm. our end of September episode so you can see if I went anywhere or where it was. So we'll see. If people want to keep up with your fall adventures, though, Micah, how can they do that? You can follow me um, at Micah Han on Instagram and Twitter. And I am at Yasmin Lomax on Instagram. And as a podcast, we will be on Instagram as at DTCBS podcast. And we're excited for you to join us there. For now, bye. And we will see you in September. Bye. Bye.